0: I was involved in a case November and December of 1994. So it was a case that was on the front page of the newspaper. um, And I was headed over to court and my hands were shaking so badly. I thought I can't do this hearing. And I opened the trunk of my car and I got into my briefcase and I looked around to see if anybody was looking. And I took four or five big slugs off off that handle of vodka, closed my trunk and went and did the hearing. That was what I thought was rational at the time. I would not defend it. Um, but I remember looking up at, at the, my office building and think, what in the hell are you doing? What what have you come to?
1: Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan Henry, and today I'm joined again by Sam Artley. We had Sam on about a few months ago to talk about mediations. He he has mediated thousands and thousands of cases and does an amazing job. But today, um, he's on to talk about something totally different. Uh, Sam is a recovering alcoholic. And after talking to him after our last podcast, we kind of got into discussing it. And I said, Hey, would you want to come on and just, you know, share your story? And he said, absolutely. So, you know, today, Sam's coming on to share a story. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Sam. Welcome to the Defense of Arrest again. How are you?
0: I'm great. It's del- I'm glad to be invited. Not everybody invites me back twice, so I'm glad to be back.
1: <laughs> well, Sometimes
0: they're sorry for the first time.
1: <laughs> well, I think. Well, I'm I'm excited to have you back because we had such a great chat our first your first time you were on that we were talking about mediations and you know how to how to like approach a successful mediation. Um, and we're veering off course here today because you and I had a, a great. Off-camera conversation last time about um, you know your recovery from from addiction to alcohol and you know how you got through that and you and I just chatted about how that would just be a really good thing to talk about on this podcast because so many lawyers and so many just people struggle with with alcohol addiction and you, you just spoke so candidly about it and were. You know, just so wonderful to talk to that. I thought it'd be great to have you on to talk about it some more, like live and recorded on camera. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm delighted to be here.
1: <laughs> so I'm I'm just so happy that you know you're willing to come on because a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't be so open to talk about it. So I appreciate that.
0: Well, that that happened kind of actually. I mean, I came. To, I mean, after four thousand mediations and 27 years sober, you you get to a little bit different place. But what <laughs> what actually happened the first time I gave talked about this publicly at all, other than in, in recovery groups. Um, I got a call from uh, the woman who's the head of the, the uh, lawyers and judges assistance program in our state. And so she runs all kinds of things for lawyers and judges with all kinds of mental health issues. And she said, I'm gonna be talking with this group, Sam, but I'd like somebody to give their story. Would you be willing to talk after I talk about what we do? Uh, and there was a long pause by me because I'm talking to my peers. Um, and then she, and then after that pause, she said, well, Sam, we couldn't ask a young person to do it. (laughs) So literally in that it was, it was a seminar to a, to a large group of, of defense lawyers. Um, and that whoever was chairing the seminar had already asked me to come speak about mediation. Um, and then this person called, so we speak about addiction. I literally at 10 o'clock, I spent an hour talking about being an alcoholic And at 11 o'clock, I talked about being a mediator (laughs) to people I've mediated with hundreds of times. So it was it was humbling, if nothing else.
1: Now, and I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself. But, you know, since you were talking to a group of your peers, and you may have known some of the did they know your your backstory when you when you talked about it at that time?
0: Most of them did not. Uh, And I and I I don't keep it a secret. But I also don't wear it on a t shirt. uh, Because my feeling generally is, if people don't know that other people have suffered from whatever kind of a mental health issue that we all kind of tend to want to hide, societally and personally, then they don't even know who to go talk to privately about it. So, you know, my my particular issue was alcoholism, but there are there are many others. Uh, and so, what what I found when I talked more broadly about it, I got way more comments back from people from talking about being an alcoholic than I did talking about. ADHD, <laughs> I'll tell you that there, I got a lot of feedback. And and you know what? Truly none of it was negative. I I mean, people reach because almost at least in my experience, almost everybody has been touched by some kind of an addiction issue these days, whether it's not. It doesn't have to be meth. It it could be prescription drugs. It could be alcohol. It could maybe pick one. Uh, And so whether it's their their brother, their sister, their spouse, their their child, whatever. I mean, literally this week, I've talked to three different people just happenstance, not seeking them out. Um, who have an adult child who's suffering from addiction. Um, and those, those, those just kind of gut-wrenching decisions as parents, you know, how much do we intervene and how much do we let this play out? Because this is theirs to deal with or not, and I can't fix them. And that's so hard as a parent because you'd like you'd be willing to do everything you could. So long answer your question.
1: And, and touching on that though, it's also, I think gone are the days that if there's that misconception like, oh, that couldn't happen to to us. Like it, it it doesn't have any social socioeconomic you know parameters. Like it it's really can be anyone, it could be any profession, you know, like it, it could be anything. And I think that's why people are much more able to listen and talk about it because it, I think it's it's not like, oh just that can't that that's not us. That wouldn't happen to us. I,
0: I think you're right, particularly later in the process. But, but what, what I say, and this is what was said to me early on, and it made so much sense, is that alcoholism is first and foremost a disease of self-deception. Um, and because of that, we all, we all have our coping skills, whether we're in a, a partnership or married relationship or something else. And we, and we, and we, do, we start there, we think, oh, he just drank too much that night. Um, and, and then even when he or she realizes it, then we might, as I did start hiding it because I knew I was drinking too much and I didn't want people to find out. Uh, so it tends to take a certain level of pain because we, we all, I mean, denial is not necessarily, it, it it can be a legitimate coping mechanism. I mean, denial is not necessarily wrong. Sometimes it helps us get through life. It's just not a good long-term strategy if there is a significant chronic problem. Yeah. Uh, and, and whether it's diabetes or, or whether it's, it's alcoholism. And so I think as a society, we tend to accept it, but we'd still, rather it be those other people over there, um, because right. to true, if yeah. someone truly has an addiction problem, recovery is at least as inconvenient and painful for many people and many families as the addiction itself was because it changed. It, it becomes as someone continues in their addiction, it truly becomes a family disease. It, it I mean, Spouses are affected. Parents are affected. Business partners are affected. It, it's it's not it's not just isolated. And, and what often happens, I will speak for my own family, is everybody kind of starts dancing around the tornado uh, <laughs> because the, because the conversations are uncomfortable, and we'd rather have peace. And and it is just and and each each family or each person kind of has their own unique stamp on what their disease is like. And at the same time, you don't want to make it so unique that you're unwilling to listen. To other people to get help
1: yeah so and let's let's just take a step back though to to you know your own personal story and and journey you know how i mean i've heard lots of stories be like oh i started drinking when i was you know in junior high school and i it, you know or or you know whatever maybe but you know when you know when did your journey start and when did you start to have that that voice in the back of your head that this this isn't serving you. This might be an issue. Well,
0: I, I always drank. I mean, I, but, but I would drink socially or I might drink too much at a party or I might binge drink, but I wasn't drinking daily. And not, not everybody has a specific starting point where they say they just kind of gave up. So I knew I was drinking too much. Um, I would drink some secretly, but not every day secretly. Um, and then in September, one of the things I that I was afraid of was I was always afraid of flying. Flying was terrifying for me. And what I found was five airplane bottles completely got rid of that terror. <laughs> so I would be honest about fear of flying and how five airplane bottles took care of that terror, as if that was a legitimate way to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and I was going on a on a trip, and a piece of of tort litigation involved a whole bunch of lawyers, and we were going out to San Francisco to take depositions. <clears throat> and um, since we were starting on Monday, I didn't want to be hungover, so I we went on Saturday, um, and I just drank and drank and drank. Um, and I was just probably had alcohol poisoning on Sunday, but to get better, I drank on Sunday as well. Um, and then we got up the next morning. I did not drink that morning, but I'd rented the car that we're going in. I ran a red light in the middle of downtown San Francisco, totaled the car on the way to these depositions, broke one lawyer's ankle in the car. Yeah. Um, and then we kind of went on to our depositions and took the depositions. My guess is I probably was above the legal limit then. I don't know. Uh, just because of how much I drank the day before. But what I remember is most people would say, you know, maybe you ought to not drink. That's a pretty good idea for you not to drink or don't fly. If that's really why you got to drink like that. But I remember coming home and decided I'm I'm done trying not to drink. I'm going to drink because whatever it was about the vagaries of life. And at that time, my wife and I had two young daughters who were two and four. Um, I'm working as a, as a litigator. So I'm working a lot of hours. We were yet to have another child two years after that, uh, another daughter. Um, And I just decided living life on life's terms, I would not have put it this way, but living life on life's terms was just too hard for me. Other people that might exercise or talk to a friend or see a therapist or you know, just whatever they might do to deal with the stress of trying lots of cases, um, for me, alcohol worked. Um, And that's what I started using. And what I found is it worked for me at work and it worked for me at home. So I would drive home and I knew if my wife saw that I was drinking as much as I was, that she'd say something to me. So I'd stop and I'd get two or three airplane bottles and drink them on the way home. And then we'd have a couple of beers at home. And, and then I decided, well, airplane bottles, that did not make economic sense. Maybe I'll get a half pint. I'll split it up. And then maybe I'll get a pint. And finally, I was up to getting a half gallon of vodka, handle vodka that fit into my briefcase. Oh, wow. Um, and so I, I just, the level kept going up and up and up and I'd pass out about eight o'clock and my wife would just think, well, he's worked hard. He's just, he's really tired. Um, yeah. and I would move on the next day, feeling like I had a hangover and, and kind of moved on down my merry road. But, um, anyway, that, 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 that was kind of the beginning for me. And, and I, what I did was I surrendered to alcohol. I was at that point. I don't, again, I wouldn't have identified it this way, but I was pretty much willing to go wherever it took me. Uh, because it was the only relief I got. When I grabbed that bottle and I felt the warmth of the straight vodka going down my throat and into my belly, I knew within about 30, 30 to 60 seconds how I was going to feel. And I knew that that part of it would last about five minutes. The problem was I just kept chasing it and I would chase it till I passed out. Or I mean, at that point, there was no telling what I'd do. I, I would do whatever alcohol made seem reasonable to me. I don't mean that I wasn't responsible for my actions, but I had. I had certainly anesthetized what other people might think are more reasonable ways to respond to the world.
1: And I mean, did you find, you know, at that time, like, was there a shift that you were, the lines of like, when was it acceptable, drink, acceptable to drink and not acceptable to drink were blurred and you were crossing those lines?
0: Yes, and I would have, um, uh, even after I stopped drinking, I would have told you that I didn't drink at work. Well, then it turned out I just left work early a lot of days. And then when I thought about it, I I remember specifically I was I was involved in a case um, in December, November and December of 1994. And it was it was when people still read newspapers. So it was a case that was on the front page of the newspaper. um, And I was headed over to court. and My hands were shaking so badly. I thought I can't do this hearing. And I opened the trunk of my car and I got into my briefcase and I looked around to see if anybody was looking. And I took four or five big slugs off that off that handle of vodka. Closed my trunk and went and did the hearing, um, and that calmed me down. So I didn't. Uh, and I, I, again, I'm not claiming that 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 was what I thought was rational at the time. I would not defend it. Um, and I, but I remember looking up at, at the, my office building and think, "What in the hell are you doing? What what have you come to?" Um, and yet, that's what I did. I went and did the hearing and and continued drinking for a little. I didn't drink a long time after that. That that was near the beginning of the end for me
1: yeah so and and so was there there's something toward the end that like pushed you to be like i need to to change this like this is not sir like i I can't do this anymore
0: um i I was by the by the very end um i was drinking about a quarter vodka a day um i would wake up in the morning feeling like i had the flu I'm just kind of laying down on the cold tile of the bathroom floor to try to feel better. And I knew the only thing that would make me feel better was a drink. Um, and yet I still drank. Um, I remember, uh, trying a case up in Northern Indiana and, um, waking up uh, the morning before closing arguments and there were bottles on the bed and the TV was blaring. And I thought, Holy cow, I got to go get a closing argument. (laughs) Um, and I, and I took a couple of drinks and I went and gave the closing argument. Um, and, and the, w- what happened, though, some of those things turned out OK. I mean, that trial turned out OK, not because I did a brilliant case of lawyering. The facts were good for us that mm-hmm. we won the case because the facts were good for us. And I didn't totally screw it up. Um, but part of me believed I can't do this without alcohol. I can't mm-hmm. go meet clients. I can't try cases. I can't take depositions. Um, but by the time I got to the to the very end, and that would be January of 1995. So that's after that hearing um, I just hated myself so much. Yeah. Um, and because I hated myself, I hated my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, I hated my kids. I thought I was a victim of everything. I mean, I would have, I would have told you if you had my life, you'd have to drink like this too. <laughs> now, now mind you, um, I'm, I'm a partner in a law firm. So I'm making more than enough money to pay my bills. I've been married for 12 or 13 years at that point. we have three daughters that are seemingly healthy and we're, we're functioning in the community. Or apparently functioning in the community. Um, and yet, my perception of that was if you had my life, you'd be drunk too. I, I had no, per- so, but, but I knew I hated myself and I got, and I felt so horrible. And I had a client at the time, in fact, my biggest client at the time, had been very honest about his alcoholism and recover from alcoholism. And I was sitting in his office one day with my briefcase that was full of vodka, talking to him about a case. And he said something. And I was sitting in his office and I started sobbing. In my biggest client's office. Yeah. Um, and he just, he was a really kind, he is a really kind person. Um, and he just kind of shook his head. And, um, and I told him, I said, I can't stop drinking. Um, and he said, you could have blown me over with a feather. I never would have any idea. And I opened my briefcase and showed him oh, that it was wow. just full of vodka. Um, he said, well, I know some people that help me not drink. And so if you're interested, he said, I'm not trying to twist your arm, you'd be welcome to come join us.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and, I, and I did. Um, and I showed up there um, with him and some other people. And I still had my briefcase full of vodka. And after, after we talked, they said, how about if we walk out to the car with you? I said, fine. I said, do you mind if we look in your briefcase? I said, no. And they took every bottle out of my briefcase.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so that was, that was kind of the beginning for me. So I went a few days and didn't drink. And then I had a, I had a trip planned to, to, I needed to be in Phoenix need be the operating board. Um, and these people said, you know, you're in no shape to do that. You're going to drink again. And if you keep drinking like this, you're going to die. This is a deadly disease. And I didn't believe that I was in plenty of denial. So I thought, no, oh, I can do this. You guys, you guys don't understand. I'm different, which tends to be a pretty common refrain for people that have addiction problems. Um, so I flew to Phoenix, I white knuckled it through this trip to Phoenix. And when I got to the Sky Harbor Air- airport, before I left, I went in, I bought, I bought a quart of vodka. I went into one of the stalls in the bathroom. I drank the whole thing down and I got on the airplane. Oh, wow. Um, And that was my last drink. Um, Fortunately, when I got home, I I did not drive myself home, although I'd be lying to you to tell you that I didn't drive drunk. I did it lots of times. Um, And and I got home, I "I just don't want to keep doing this. Um, And so after that, it became kind of a full time job, just trying not to drink a day at a time. But it was just I I mean, a term you'll often hear people use is incomprehensible demoralization. Mm -hmm. Um, And that incomprehensible demoralization can come when you've got a job and, and a spouse and three kids at home, or for some people that comes when they've lost everything. And for some people it never comes. I mean, often people will say, if, if, you are, if you're suffering from addiction, you kind of have three options. One is to get better, two is an institution, and three is death. Those tend to be the, and I realize there are a lot, there's lots of nuance to that, um, but those tend to be the places where things go. And I was talking to a pathologist one time and he said, there are so many um, unreported addiction-related deaths because people fall down the stairs. Um, they fall in their kitchen and hit their head. and It shows up as a um, as a as a brain a tra- injury. Yeah. yeah, some kind of trauma. Um, and so. So what happened is that there, as I, as I looked back and when I'm talking to my, my client and finally being honest with him, and I was lying to my wife about all this. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's not like anybody's going to put our marriage. We've been married 39 years now, but nobody at that point would put our marriage up as a, as a poster for, this is really what you want. Um, but, but when I looked back on it, I mean, I, I, I would, I would get up on Saturday morning. My wife, um, was a, ju- has her master's in counseling. It was a juvenile probation officer. Um, but once we started having kids, she decided she, she would, she wants to stay with kids. And so on Saturdays, I'd say, well, yeah, I'll give you a break on Saturdays. I get up Saturday morning and we'd take the girls out and we'd, we'd go get, you know, to McDonald's and we'd come to the office and play in the library. And when we had libraries and law offices mm-hmm. and do those things. Well, when I would do that, claiming I'm giving her a break, um, I would sometimes drink a pint of vodka before I did that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would, and it took me probably years into recovery, to be honest about that what a danger I was to my own three little girls. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have told you, I may drink too much and I may not be the best husband in the world, but by golly, am I a good father. <laughs> Total lie. It was, I was lying to myself and everybody else. And if I'm lying to myself, how can I tell the truth to anybody else? Um, but th- those things were so difficult, just that honesty, so difficult to, to come to grips with. That the, the same yeah. pathologist that I mentioned one time, I was about three or four years sober and he puts his arm around me and he said, you know, Sam, I might kind of like you if you had any capacity to be honest.
1: <laughs> um, and I remember
0: my feelings were hurt. But, you know, when I think about that, what what and this was kind of the dovetail between, and we didn't talk about it last time because it was really more about mediation, but I did my first mediation and got sober within a few months of each other. So I started mediating and stopped drinking at the same time. And what, what happened was as I learned more things about myself and my alcoholism and entitlement and anger and fear and and all those those things that that drive many of us some lawyers not all lawyers perhaps um those things that i needed to learn about that drove me to drink were also things that people experience that aren't alcoholics so when people would show up in a mediation and they'd they'd have a real sense of what justice was and what fairness was um and that the world wasn't fair and they were angry and they were afraid and they were entitled and they felt vulnerable um those things all started to make sense to me. They, they weren't just third party me thinking about it because the, the, the character flaws or character defects or character challenges, whatever word someone wants to use that, that alcoholics have are, are no different than those that everybody has, right? We've all, we've all got stress. We may have an anger management problem, pick whatever your issue is. It's just that people with addiction have a specific dysfunctional way of responding to it, which is alcohol and drugs. Um, and once I learned that I could, I could actually connect better with people without, I don't go into every mediation start talking about being a drunk. Um, <laughs> but when those people would respond with anger, I would think, oh, they're, they're afraid of something. Um, yeah. How can I engage with them in a way that's effective? Because that's what people did with me in my recovery they would say, they, they, they didn't just come at me and argue with me all the time. I mean, they would sometimes, or sometimes they just told me to shut up, but I don't tell, I don't tell people in mediation, just shut up. Um, <laughs> I don't find that an effect. It's an option, it's just not a good one. Um, but, but, but I learned as people dealt with me what was effective and they kind of talked, I might be afraid, but they wouldn't necessarily call me out on the fear right away because that may be too vulnerable. I wouldn't have acknowledged being afraid. I talk about being concerned or I talk about being stressed or having anxiety or whatever else. And then we could get to some of the more fundamental issues and, and that, that address the alcoholism itself. But those things have been going on for me for a long time. I mean, I, you know, between, so I was 37 when I got sober and I'm 64 now, so 27 years, uh, but, um, but it took a long time. It took, and it took a long time, and then I, I remember being so concerned because we live in a relatively small community. Um, and when I told finally was honest with my wife, this is what I'm doing with my drinking and I need to get better. And we talked about, you know, a way to get better. And, and the help I needed. Um, and I thought, well, you know, hopefully she doesn't tell anybody because how am I going to have a client base if she did that? Well, mm-hmm. she was so angry and she needed to deal with it herself. She like told everybody at Kroger. Um, she, <laughs> she was telling the cashier and the, you know, the guy that was filling, you know, putting cucumbers in the produce. Um, and, and I remember going to somebody, one of the people was helping me and said, you know, you know my wife's doing these things. She's, she's telling other people all this stuff. I said, your wife gets to do whatever, the, whatever she damn well pleases. She's not the alcoholic. I said, you, you live with it. Um, And it's your job to get better. And she may or may not choose to stay with you. That's going to be a choice she makes. Um, But whatever she needs to do to take care of herself is hers and stay the hell out of her way. Um, And so they were, I also don't talk to people like that in mediation. So I I, I, I needed some people to be honest with me in a direct and pretty powerful way. And sometimes with, with language that we might not not broadly share even on a private podcast.
1: Now, I, I did want to ask, though, about when, when you came clean to your, to your wife I mean, you, and you were being very secretive about your drinking. Was she just completely floored? Did she have no clue or did she, had she suspected but kind of didn't say anything?
0: No, when, when she looked back on it, she certainly knew that I drank too much sometimes. I mean, like we'd be at a, at a party or a dinner and she'd be kicking me under the table because I said the same thing eight times. Um, or she'd say, we need to go. But she thought of it being in those circumstances. I, I wasn't a yelling, screaming, throw things against the wall drunk. Uh, that didn't make me any better drunk. Just I was I was a different drunk than that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, no, so she felt, um, she felt she didn't trust me at all. She felt like she'd really been violated and lied to. And she was right. She was, she had been. Um, and so, I mean, she wondered whether she could ever trust me again, uh, whether she wanted to continue this marriage or not. And a lot of that, she worked out on her own and some of it she shared with me and some of it she didn't. Um, but, but yeah, it was the, the first, probably the first 18 months after I got sober, um, may have been the worst time in our 39 years of marriage. I mean, worse yeah. than the drunk part. Cause we kind of adjusted to me a drunk. I mean, she had her role. I had my role. I didn't want to get found out. So I didn't interfere with her role. I wasn't telling her how to be a mother and she ran our household. She paid the bills. She did all the heavy lifting mm-hmm. to keep our household going um and i run, and then i stopped drinking and i want to give her a lot of instructions like like i suddenly became the expert she did not want to give me a warm hug with that no
1: she was not happy with that
0: she she, she was not remotely happy with that And it, i mean literally i would come home um, and some some days you know we got at the time i got sober our children are five four and three so they, they were really pretty close yeah. together um And, um, she would scream at me that she hated me. And and if you met my wife, I mean, she's a really mild, she's very even. I mean, that's not, she doesn't present that way and she doesn't behave that way privately, except it, I mean, I I had behaved in ways that pushed her beyond what her own limit was. Um, and I think, I forget whether I told you this last time, but I went to, we went to, to a therapist because by golly, we needed one. Um, and, um, this, and we've talked about the trust piece and, and the, and the therapist said, Sam, I want you to go home every night. And every night when you walk in the door, no matter what Patty's doing, no matter what she says, I want you to say, I'm home, I'm sober, and I'm glad to be here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And being a lawyer and full of myself, I want to argue about that. I said, what if, what if I'm not really happy to be there? Um, and, and he looked me in the eye and he said, when did being honest become so important to you? Just fucking say it. Um, now, not every, sorry about my language, but not every therapist would choose to talk to somebody like that. Um, But I did it. I mean, every night I came home, no matter what was going on, that's the way I walked in the door because I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to lose my marriage and I wanted to get better. Um, And my wife was talking to a friend years later and and told her that that was that was so incredibly important to her. Yeah. Um, And so over time, she came to trust me again and we came to live our lives again. And our our three daughters are now, uh, you know, 29 and 31 and 33 or or something like that. I think I got their years all off by one, but but they're grown and they've got their own kids. Um, but it, it was hard. I mean, and it was, and what I forget, I think this, we forget this a lot, but an alcoholic in a home really is, I use the term kind of a tornado that people dance around. And then when people realize that they're getting better, everybody's slapping them on the back. If I go give a talk, somebody's going to clap for that talk. Um, they forget the person that was living with the tornado that was Mm -hmm. suffering, um, alongside and didn't necessarily know why that held things together. They're not, they're not getting clapped on the back. People aren't, aren't saying, boy, aren't you great? Um, it's like, what am I, chopped liver over here on the side? And yeah. and I think that gets lost. And it certainly did in our family sometimes that you know, people said, isn't it great going to Patty and saying, isn't it great that Sam's sober? I said, well, some days, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just, it, it, you know, he's a pain in the ass. And and, and so um, I, it, I think it's really important not to forget that, that if, if it is a family disease, then it's also a family recovery process. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as my friends told me patty gets to do what she wants you need to do whatever you need to do not to drink and you guys are going to decide whether you're going to end up having a, a new marriage basically um i mean if you're in a long marriage you're in lots of marriages anyway um i heard somebody say, and i, and I think that's really true but if you throw addiction into that it's like deciding again whether you want to stay with this because it cannot be the same marriage it was before yeah not in, not and continue
1: now and one thing that kind of i i thought of when you mentioned you know when after you got sober, you know, and you were kind of a pain in the even more of a pain in the ass, you know, did you feel like, or maybe for your wife um, beforehand, you're you're even though she didn't know you were drinking, your behaviors were predictable.
0: Yes, you know, because yes. because
1: you were predictable, you knew every day what you were going to do, and you were probably going to pass out by eight eight p.m. And so that she was used to it. And then you made a change, which you needed to make, but then suddenly you're not predictable anymore or, or you're predictably angry. And that's probably harder to deal with uh, as a new, a new venture, I should say.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And I want to be careful not to speak too much for Patty, but, but for me in terms of our routines, yeah, I get I left really early. I I frequently left home in the dark and I frequently got home in the dark, Um, but, but, and and I, and I spent a long time in, and. And I'd done that for years. I mean, even before I started drinking as much as I was drinking. So that was the routine we knew. And I got home and I was not awake a long time. Um, So I'd go to sleep and then I'd get up early again the next morning and and go back at it. So it was very, so she had 100% control during the day. Um, I'd come home and I'd interfere maybe a little bit just by the presence of another body in the household. Um, But I'd leave, you know, certainly before the children were up um, before our girls were up and and often before she was up. Uh, So yeah and then week I'd often work weekends too so weekends were were a little little different I mean but I mean I went to church drunk I remember standing in the pew and kind of you know what um try, listing one way and the other while I'm while people are singing I'm trying to hold on to the back so I mean and and yet that cuz that was the myth I was telling myself when I talk about that self deception yeah. um I said yeah I'm a, I'm a good upstanding citizen. I'm a good husband. I I, I would say those things because I needed to, because otherwise, how could I live with that churning conflict going on in the middle of my belly all the time? The difference between who I claimed to be and who I actually was.
1: Yeah. So, you know, during your first steps of, you know, in your, in your recovery, you know, how did you make it through the battle of every day? And, you know, push away like the demons that are in their head saying, you need it, you need it, you need it, or whatever it may be. Like, did you, what was your method?
0: Well, I I had, I had a group of people that were helping, helping me. And I certainly didn't do it on my own, not remotely. And they were willing to be deeply engaged. I had lots of phone numbers um, and and I would call people and they would call me and they said, you can call me any time of the night. If you, if you, and I'll come meet you at two in the morning, if you want to have a cup of coffee, not to drink. Um, but early on, and it's funny, I mean, I was so compelled to drink. I, I mean, by the end, I couldn't not drink. I mean, I drank, it wasn't even that I wanted to, I couldn't not drink.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and it was almost miraculous when I made it through a day, not drinking. Um, and so it was a little bit like, you described, I mean, I white knuckled it. When I go to work in the morning, it was white knuckling it to get by the liquor stores. And, I, I, and when I drive all over the state to, to do cases, I knew where all the little liquor stores were all over the state. Cause I'd stopped at many of them. Um, so it was really staying in touch with other people. Um, and remembering how awful it was. I mean, so what I'd done is when I stopped drinking, I'd completely taken away the anesthetic mm-hmm. that I'd used to be married, to be a father, to be a lawyer, to be a person in the community. And so the alcohol was gone. And we might say that's good, but I, but I had to, to, the pain was not gone. The pain yeah. was overwhelming. In many ways, it, it was like a 50-51 decision every day. 51% do I don't not want to drink and 49? I do. Mm-hmm. And, but, but a lot of that was um, really having people that help with, with, you know, what I would call kind of a program of recovery. Now, I don't, I don't talk specifically about my program of recovery. Although if anybody's listening to this, I'd be happy to talk to people one-on-one about the mm-hmm. specifics. But, and the reason is this, um, we all know whether we're watching, whether we're seeing in our news feed or something else, uh, celebrities or people in our community or maybe politicians or whomever um, that drank and and touted their recovery and then they went out and drank again mm-hmm. um, and again and again um, and I want to be careful not to hold myself out as a spokesperson for some program of recovery I mean if, if if you google alcoholism or addiction or recovery I mean you'll have a million things come up on your phone or your computer and so there are people that that you know from passages, Malibu, to rational recovery, to inpatient programs at local hospitals, to Alcoholics Anonymous. To, I mean, pick, pick one. There, there are lots out yeah. there. So I, I'm not here to criticize any of them or to advocate for any of them. I only know what worked for me. And that's so that's the only experience I have. Sure. But, but kind of getting back to your question, it was lots of people and lots of intervention. I mean, I probably talked to other people that were recovering alcoholics often, six, eight, 10 times a day in the beginning. And I would go see, I'd see him for coffee. I'd see him for lunch. I'd see him just to kind of get together and spend time together. Um, and sometime between it was January 29th in 1995 was the last time I had a drink sometime between then and in the spring or early summer, a day happened. And I remembered, I didn't want to drink. Mm-hmm. I can't, you'd think I would mark that one just as prominently as the, as my the day of my last yeah. drink, but I, I don't remember when it was. I just, and I thought, Wow, I mean that truly. Imagining when I was drunk, imagining that day when I wouldn't want to drink was every bit as difficult or impossible for me as trying to imagine a new color. I couldn't. I couldn't truly. I couldn't. I could not imagine that it was beyond. Um, or, or, losing weight. I mean, when, when I, you know, if I'm 20 pounds overweight, I know these programs to lose weight work, but I still don't believe it can really happen. You know, and 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 then when it does, you, you know, I might gain the weight back, but but I think I I really just couldn't believe it. Um, and then a few more, and that wasn't, that didn't mean that was the last time I wanted to drink. And I remember going that, that spring earlier in the spring, when I wasn't done wanting to drink yet, um, my, my best friend growing up, his mom died. And I went up to his funeral to her funeral and visited funerals in, in the community I grew up on are big occasions for people to drink. I mean, we, Mm -hmm. we, we mourn the dead and we, and we celebrate the living usually with boatloads of alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, and, Um, I remember going up there and, and I, and I went to the funeral and I went back to their house afterwards and there was lots of alcohol and I didn't drink and I drove home and I made it home past the liquor stores I used to stop at. Um, and I came home and I told one of the people was helping me. Um, and he said, he said, I almost wish you would have drunk because now you'll think you can do it on your own. Did you call anybody? Did you talk to anybody? Did you develop any kind of a plan to go into a situation where you would naturally drink? So what you could do not to drink to call somebody. Um, and I did none of those. So I, that's why there, there, is, there is an element of whether we call it luck, grace, what, whatever term one wants to use. Um, I can't tell you why some of the same people I stopped drinking with are dead from addiction today after 27 years. Some of them stayed sober a year, some of them 10 years. Um, and then they drank themselves to death or they died with a needle in their arm. I do not have any ability to tell you why them and not me yeah so that part of it I want to be grateful for and even though I can't explain it, whatever I have done has worked for me but not on my own the, the, even though I was I don't call people nine and ten times a day I'm not having to get together with people three and four times a day now but I still talk to another alcoholic every day yeah um, I still get together to meet with people every week uh, because it it, it it saved my life I don't, and I don't mean that casually I mean I sincerely believe, that I would be dead by now if I hadn't gotten a lot of incredibly generous, no questions asked help from other people. And the thing that has been so, I guess, nourishing for me is they don't all look like me. They don't all do have the same job I have. Some of them didn't graduate from high school, and they'll have more wisdom than I have on a certain thing. Um, and it's not just men or just women. Or I mean, it's and and that's. When I think about what I do, when we think about how our, our lives get kind of cordoned off either economically or professionally or by the schools, we, our kids go to or those other things, um, most of the time I'm running into other people that, that from the outside looking in seem to be living a life that's familiar to me. Yeah. Um, and by getting together with people that are recovering alcoholics, um, th- there, there is no, there's no password at the door. Um, and so anybody can come no matter what their problem is, whether they've been in jail, whether they've got tattoos all over their face, whether they've lost their family, wh- wh- whatever it is. Um, and, and that has been such an eye opening experience. And I think part of that has also made me enjoy mediations more because uh, people that come into mediation, I mean, for, for the clients, it's often a one off, unless they're constant business people that are litigating all the time. People don't want to need a lawyer. They don't want to give up that kind of control. They don't want to be that vulnerable. And to be able to sit with them and and can, and I'm not claiming, I mean, a lot of people might say I'm pretty angry when I mediate even. And so I'm, and I'm a pretty direct communicator when I mediate, but I can be kind and acknowledge those other people and not have to control everything and acknowledge that they have every right to make any decision they want, just like an alcoholic or an addict does. I can go drink today if I want to. Those, those people cannot keep me from drinking. If I want to drink, I can drink today. Yeah. They helped me decide that's not the better option.
1: Yeah. This, this might be an odd question, but like knowing what you know and what you personally have gone through and, you know, talking to other recovering alcoholics, do you have a, like sometimes when you see people, you can kind of spot things about them, like something might be going on there that, you know, you can spot because you've lived through it. And that might fall under the blind eye of, you know, someone else.
0: I I think so. And I think a lot of people that are recovering would say that just little inconsistencies, or uh, somebody's drinking a little funny, or they'll leave at funny times and stay away from the room and come back and they seem just a little bit different. Um, Or when everybody else has stopped, they continue to drinking, or you see subtle behavioral changes, just a little slack in the face, or maybe a little bit of impatience, or a bigger personality that controls the table when they didn't, or somebody's angrier with their children. And I don't mean that everybody can't notice those. So, yes. And at the same time, I want to be really careful not to think that I'm on, um, that I am omniscient, that I know that that person's an alcohol. I mean, one of the funny things for me, and this, this is not blanketly true, but I started noticing it more often is, you know, when you're drinking that much alcohol, you're getting boatloads of sugar. So what I started noticing is that lots of people that are, that are still actively, not necessarily alcoholics, but that drink a lot, a lot of them don't want dessert. Um, when you, now that's not true of everybody. I've got Plenty. but i noticed it, it's not uncommon and that's I'm, for people to go out to dinner when somebody doesn't want dessert don't assume they're an alcoholic um,
1: <laughs> but, i never get dessert
0: <laughs> exactly well and I, for all kinds of reasons people don't um but and like, oh, what,
1: God, what are you saying sam i'm not saying that i'm <laughs> no, not I'm saying that <laughs>
0: um but but it was true for me i mean i went from i never got dessert and once I wasn't getting all that sugar from alcohol, I wanted dessert all the time. I wanted, you know, I wanted to eat Snickers all day long. Um, and that's not, like I said, that's not a telltale sign of alcohol uh, for an alcoholic. No, but it uh, was but true sense. for me. I got all yeah. that sugar. I needed to get the sugar. I wanted the sugar at some level. But yeah, I do notice those signs sometimes. But two things: one is I don't want to say anything to anybody unless somebody asks me. Um, that's
1: my other question. <laughs> yeah. I,
0: so I I do not, I do not call people out um, or say, you know, do you think you have a drinking problem? Now, if it were you know, my, my, my brother, my best friend, something like that. I might say something to them, but even then it would probably be a question. It would be more, I noticed this. Are you okay? Not, it seems like you're drinking too much. I think you're an alcoholic. Um, yeah. it would be more, I'm a little concerned, but, but I would be very careful about people. I, I say that to because most people, if they aren't ready to stop drinking or address an addiction problem, if I'm even right that they have one, um, they're going to get it in their own good time. I mean, me saying something to them is not likely to do it and likely to end a friendship, hurt a marriage, whatever. So yeah. I, I just kind of tuck it away. And, and uh, sometimes just try to be, have some compassion, say, boy, um, or think just have some there. That was me. I mean, sometimes I'll see people out and it will just make me cringe because mm-hmm. I'll know, golly, that was me. Um, and I don't want to forget that. I, I don't want to continue to punish myself for it. But I also don't want to forget it because it is a helpful reminder that, that no, no matter, I mean, one way some people will describe it is I want to look through that drink and see what's behind it, which is yeah. the whole bottle, which is the behavior, which is passing out, which is putting my wife and children in danger and other people in danger again. I mean, I, yeah. I've got a friend, he says, you know, if I go back out and drink, call my law per- partners and tell them that I'm no longer part of the firm, call my wife and tell her she no longer has a husband, call my kids and tell them they don't have a father. Um, and that, that just, I mean, that can bring tears to my eyes. I don't, yeah. I believe that to be true. Um, and I do not, that's not a price I'm any longer willing to pay for drinking.
1: Yeah. Um, and so, you know, now that you are, I, I don't want to say so far from, removed from it, but you've, you've been living, you know, in recovery for almost 30 years, but, you know, you had mentioned that flying on airplanes that was a, a trigger and then you and i before the podcast we were talking how you were traveling a lot this week do you still experience those same types of triggers and if, so how do you deal with it
0: um not nearly like for instance flying doesn't bother me at all anymore yeah I mean not, not even a little bit I'm not, <laughs> not nervous before I'm not nervous something that the turbulence comes like well this is low roller coaster ride so that that but that was slow and coming I mean i it, it I mean w- literally what what a person who was helping me a lot said you need to decide whether you need not to drink or you need to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's said because Pete, there, there are other people that can do that work. You can transition your work because if you keep drinking, you're going to be dead. Mm-hmm. So you think you're so important, or this case is so important, or you're the only one that can do this. So you've got to get on an airplane. No, you don't. You, you need. To, you may choose to get on that airplane, but you need to understand that is a choice. It is not a have to. And if you get on that airplane, you can choose to be nervous and grip. You know, hold, hold the stranger's hand next to you if you have to. Now, these days you might get sued for that, but, <laughs> but, but you, you need to be careful whose hand you hold. Uh, but, but so, so to make that decision. And I flew in terror for probably four or five years. Yeah. And then I was flying so much that I just kind of got desensitized to it. Uh, but but the, the, the other, I didn't have any other identifiable, to use your word, trigger other than flying. I mean, I, a, a, another friend of mine who, who's an engineer says, people will describe what they did to drink or, or their behavior even after drinking that no one would justify. He, and he would say, let's just call that alcoholism. Um, I don't know. I mean, for me, the trigger was, I woke up in the morning. I mean, yeah. I, I had, it really was, I mean, yeah. I, I woke up in the morning and what I do is drink. Um, and because I feel better when I drink. And since I don't like discomfort, even the tiniest bit of discomfort, uh, that I'm going to drink uh, now for other people there, are. I mean, like my friend's funeral would, would have been, I mean, we would probably call that a trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, that we would, we started hanging out with different people. I mean, I've got um, one friend now who uh, we'd been friends with for, for 20, 15 years, probably at the time. And we just kind of moved away from that friendship, not because there's anything wrong with them. We didn't say anything to them, um, but they felt really abandoned. Well, ironically now he's a recovering alcoholic. So we see him a lot again, (laughs) Um, but, but I mean, their feelings were really hurt. And that doesn't mean that, and it wasn't because we didn't move away from that. Cause we thought or were telling they were alcoholics. It was just what we did when we got together with them was so centered on alcohol that I was incapable of doing that. Yeah. Um, and so I either stay away from those things or unlike that funeral, that was a really good when When the guy said to me, I wish you drunk. Um, as opposed to thinking you can do it on your own. If I'm going, if I'm knowingly going into a situation like that, I talk to somebody else who's in recovery I say, this is what I'm going into. It's not that I never go into a bar. If there's a reason to go into a bar, um, I don't go into a bar to sit at a bar by myself and have a Coke. Um, so, cause I don't need to be in bars. I can watch a ball game, any place. I can yeah. see friends other places. Um, but there may be a client that wants to meet at their local pub because that's what they do. And I, I can do that. Um, I wouldn't have done it early on. Um, so I, I, I create a plan. And often what I'll do, if, if there's that kind of a situation, that plan will include, I'm going to call one of my friends in recovery before I go in. And I'm going to call a friend in recovery afterwards. Now, early on, I don't find that remotely humiliating now, but early on, I would have thought, you know, a man of my caliber shouldn't have to do that. You don't understand how important I am. Now, I'm so important that I'm starting my day by drinking pints of vodka while I drive with my kids. And yet I wanted to trust my own thinking. I mean, it's that's why I say I feel like I have need to have tattooed on my forehead or on my whiteboard in my office, a disease of self-deception. But what I've also learned is that other human beings live in self-deception. Right. I mean, it, it's whether it's they recognize things or they don't or people that come to see us um, as, as lawyers and, and we hear what they say. What were you thinking? You know, what were you thinking when you made that decision? That, that was self-deception, not necessarily alcohol induced, but self-deception is out there for all of us. Among the most difficult things, I think, for people to do is to ask for help. And that's really what people are doing all the time when they come to see us as lawyers. I mean, they've run into a situation that they can't handle themselves. They've got some notion of what they think is fair or not fair, there is some obstruction to that, a person or something going on, and they hire a lawyer to go change it if they can. And think about when those people come in to see us, they, they don't think there are two ways to look at it or 10. It's like, I am right. This mm-hmm. shouldn't happen this way. Right. I shouldn't have to pay you nearly as much money. It ought to be over quickly and you ought to be able to give me a guarantee, <laughs> right? Now, th- that's the way an alcoholic thinks. But what I found is that's the way people think. It, it, it's, it's, and so our job is to engage them in a way that we don't tell them they're the idiots because they're not, they're no different than we are. But we want to engage them in a, in a mm-hmm. skillful way that allows them to have those conversations where we can talk with them directly about what the options are, what we can or can't do, what the risks are so they can make good decisions based on their priorities.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and and that, that's, that's really kind of what happens I find for most people in recovery. But early on, and I'll speak only for me, I was incapable of thinking well. That 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 fog of this is the way I do things on autopilot and alcohol is the fuel that drives me. It just had to get bad enough. We People talk about bottoms, whatever one's bottom is, that incomprehensible demoralization, that I was willing to listen to what other people told me and do it, even if it didn't make sense. Because yeah. what made sense to me kept me drunk. And the idea, think about that. If, if you're just a you know, a normal human being and you, you've got a problem and you go talk to your, your, your best friend and they tell you something that doesn't make sense. I mean, you want them to explain it to you and you want it to make sense to you. And then you want to make a, what you think is a rational decision on whether to do it or not. Um, well, what, I, what I've learned from this process is there are people that have ideas that are different from mine that are worth it for me to try without a guaranteed outcome. Mm-hmm. My thinking is not always the best thinking in the room. And that's helped me also legally. Not just from a recovery, it's helped me in my marriage. It's helped me talk to clients. It's helped me in my law partnership. Yeah. For sure. um, but 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 it requires there is a, and I don't mean this in a religious sense, but, but there is a leap of faith there. And and that, and the fundamental part of that leap of faith is, um, I can be okay regardless of the outcome. And and I and that is easy to forget that when we're making decisions that are important, whether it's with our are, I mean, think about, and you've got young children. My young children are grown. So my responsibility is basically done. Uh, but, the, the, but those things you think, uh-oh, what if, they, what if they don't get into this class? Or what if they get yep. this teacher instead of that teacher? And what all of us know to have enough wear on our tires, and you are a lot younger than me, but you've got enough wear on your tires. I believe you had to have had some things happen different than you wish them to happen. And you're still okay, right? I mean, maybe not exactly what you want, but you, you did okay not getting that job, not getting into that school, not making this money, not getting this, call. pick whatever it might be that, that seemed so important in that moment um, and you didn't get it and you might've been sad, depressed and tears, whatever way we respond to dis- life's disappointments. And then you got up the next morning, you know, and you and you right. put your clothes on and you went out and you met the world and mm-hmm. it may have taken some time, but that whatever that thing was, it didn't continue to dominate your life in the way that you thought it would. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's why I say that getting sober was so helpful to me as a mediator too. And I'm not, there are lots of good media. I was talking to a group of mediators the other day. I said, you know, I really like it when people say, we need you, Sam, you're the guy we want. But they're saying that to plenty of other people too. Um, And the truth, the statistical truth is 98% of all cases settle. And I am not mediating 98% of all cases. So I, I may make some kind of a difference, but so will whatever mediator who does that job make a difference. Um, and there's a 98% statistical chance that that case will settle. Yeah. So, th- and and that part was helpful to me too. That came from from getting sober. Is that it's not it's not that I'm not unique in some way. I mean, I've got my own genetic makeup, um, but I'm not more special than anybody else. But there's part of our ego that like somebody tells you that they, boy, I like hearing that. Maybe I really am special. Um, and what I've learned is that I'm no different than anybody else. Um, yeah. it's not, I mean, how many times do you, does someone talk, come talk to you about a problem? It could be personal, could be professional. And after you listen to them and you offer whatever counsel they say, well, their response is either exactly or in the form of, well, you don't understand. I mean, they are so wed to their problem and whatever way they have of solving it. They really don't want counsel, um, even though they think they do, they want affirmation for the decision they've already made because right. considering how to do something differently is painful. Um, and that's really kind of a place where people that are in recovery get Is there is no pain-free option. It is painful to keep drinking and it is painful to stop drinking. Yeah. And we live with what I call option F and what I talked about some in my book, option F, which is fantasy. I, I, I've got, I'm, I'm in this pain and surely there ought to be some pain-free option. And what all of us learn who have lived long enough is that there are situations in life which are not pain-free, whether it's physical, psychological, pick it. They're all tied together anyway. Um, so sorry'm I'm, I'm, I'm rambling now.
1: No and I think that's a good point, but it just made me think of this is that you know when you say that like you know you're you're not special or whatever but then and you're again you're you're further removed from it but was there a time that you felt an anger or jealousy towards people who could drink? and not and be able to like oh I'll have a beer or a glass of wine and then just stop and then were you did you have that feeling like well why why can't I do that and like anger or jealousy or whatever it may be
0: anger jealousy are both good words rage sometimes (laughs) I mean it's not fair that they can do it and I can't yeah um and and I mean I would call it actually grief I mean Mm -hmm. I grieved um that I'd lost I'd lost what I thought was nourishing me rather than killing me yeah. and that's how off my perception was but yeah I would you know you see that the the commercial or the or the 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 big I mean there are drinks that are out now that didn't even exist when I stopped drinking you know I mean yeah. and, and all the craft beers and they they present it so well and there's the you know the the moisture coming down the side of the glass, and it's people you know having it when they're at the ball game with their but I mean, the marketers are good, I mean, they can they can uh-huh. hit the fundamental parts they of capture our a
1: moment, you know? absolutely.
0: And, and, and I want that moment, but I lived as if that moment could be sustained, yes, or that I could, or I mean, and it's I, I don't know that it's so different from the diabetic who can't have sugar, you know, or somebody who's who's going through some kind of other kind of treatment where there are things they simply can't do, not if they want their treatment to work, yeah. Um, and but yeah, and it was, I, I, can't, I can't even tell you how long that was. And, and there are people who have not had a drink as long as me that still have moments when they want to drink. They don't. I mean, some do, some don't. But, but there are people, um, and I can't tell you why that, that obsession was lifted from me. And when I say was lifted, I, I don't see recovery as some of this, some, this great act of willpower or something to be proud of. I mean, the statistics are way more people who, who have alcohol and addiction problems continue to have alcohol and addiction problems, then don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't tell you why people that did what seemed to be the same things I did um, died drunk, um, and I didn't. Yeah. So I want to, I, I don't mean that there isn't an element of participation in that process, and it's a completely, a complete 300 or 180 degree shift in mindset. Um, but I can't tell you, I don't, when somebody comes in the door that wants help, I don't know who's going to be sober in five years and who's not. Yeah. It has nothing to do, as far as I can tell, with whether they went to an Ivy League school or or whether they're, um, you know, unemployed. Um, and yet we kind of worship at that altar of intellect yeah. or accomplishment or money or whatever it is. Um, and th- this this has been one of the things that helped me stop worshiping those things, at least as much as I used to. I'd like to tell you that I completely gotten rid of that, but I, but I haven't had, I no longer have rage anymore because that practice of looking through the glass, through the bottle, what's going to happen, think, that's simply a price I can't pay. Yeah. Um. I mean, th- those people have a different disposition than I do, and they might even be able to drink to excess and get pretty buzzed or even drunk, and it's not what they do all the time. It doesn't affect their lives. They don't drive drunk. They don't hurt their family. So I don't. I don't judge anybody who maybe even decides Friday nights my night to get drunk. Well, that they ever, They have every right to get drunk if they want to. Yeah. Um. I'm. I'm not here to tell them that they can't. I just know I can't if I want to live a life and have the life I have.
1: Yeah. And you know, you had. I'm backtracking a little bit, but you'd mentioned, you know, your kids are grown now. And they were very little, you know, w- when you got sober. But and you're very open about everything. So I imagine you're very open with your children about, you know, your your journey. But do they, from your conversations, do they have any recollection of, you know, you know, drinking dad versus dad now?
0: Uh, only from the videos. Oh God. Um, <laughs> and, and what what they what It'll yeah i know to be it's
1: hard a, for you
0: <laughs> i don't watch them i don't watch yeah. them i leave the room if they're watching the videos and when they're little i leave the room i can't watch it it's, yeah. it's just too horrible yeah. um the answer is yes but, but they don't really remember the drinking they remember the recovery for instance
1: yeah. they're
0: they're um we used to have people to our house um that were other alcoholics and they'd come and we'd sit, sit around and talk about alcoholism and recovery um what they what they remember in my in fact i'll send it to you when we when we finish this my my uh youngest daughter is a poet. Um, and she remembers very vividly what it was like to be home when these mostly men were downstairs and, and my wife would, would kind of, um, corral the girls after they come back from volleyball or a school show or something and get them upstairs. So we, I mean, so we, we came a long way and recovery became part of our household. Um, Mm -hmm. so like when, you know, people are going through divorces and they couldn't talk to each other and they'd, they'd have to exchange kids. Our house would be the house. They do that. Um, and we we would and that people would call at all times, and and I don't, I don't, and so I'd take the call. If it was an alcoholic, call, I might not take a client call in the you know the middle of Thanksgiving dinner, um, but if it's an alcoholic calling that might drink, I take that call. Um, and so they know they know that. In fact, my youngest daughter, after she graduated from the poet, after she graduated from college um went and worked in an outdoor recovery wilderness recovery program in North Carolina for two years where she'd go out for 10 days in the wilderness with 18 to 28 year old mostly heroin addicts, many of whom died. Oh. Um I mean it's it's it addiction is a brutal, brutal disease. And if, if we don't it, 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 that self-deception piece again, I know I keep saying is we could say, well, I'm not gonna die from it today. But you know, the, the, I mean, how many times you read in the paper the drunk driving the car makes a left-hand turn in front of the semi tractor trailer and the passenger gets killed, not yeah. not the drunk. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, and it's that person did not get up that morning planning that they 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 were deluded into thinking, well, maybe I even drive a little better when I'm drunk. I pay more attention. I mean, you, you you've probably heard people say that. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, the, the 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 rage it was present all the time. I mean, I I was and and I would I think back and I you know, how hard it must have been to live with me. I, I went from, from docile drunk to sober, know-it-all. Um, I, I mean, I even, I mean, it makes me cringe to think both who I was drunk and who I was in early sobriety. And you know what? Even today, I cringe sometimes. with. who I mean, there there are times, speaking of recovery, it happened, I don't know, a few months ago, where I said something to my wife, Patty, um, and we weren't having an angry conversation. It was, it was recalling something or something. And I just saw almost like the blood drain out of her face. And she said, that takes me back to the way I felt 30 years ago. Oh, wow. So I don't, the idea that um, when I get sober, that I get to control how long, if ever she gets over the hurt that I caused. Um, I don't get to decide that. That, that is hers. Um, I don't get to decide how long I pay the price for that. And because what I think is all I know is the price I paid. I don't know what price she paid. Yeah. Um, and it's easy for me to discount that or think, well, that was 27 years ago, it's time for you to be over that. She gets, she had her experience and she gets to have her pain and she gets to have her recovery. Um,
1: so, you know, we're, we're almost out of time, but I, I didn't want to wrap up without talking about advice or, you know, and not necessarily advice. Cause I know you don't want to tell anyone what to do, but if there's someone listening, you know, and that, that some of what you're saying may resonate with them, you know, do you have any like words of wisdom or, you know, thoughts on to that, to that person?
0: Yeah, I, I would say there are, there are very few people who get better on their own that simply think their way out of addiction. Um, and we were talking earlier about, you know, Googling on your phone, almost every community has, um, a, an, and an addiction unit at the hospital, at the local hospital. And there are p- people there that can tell you different recovery programs from inpatient five-day detoxes that are often free at the hospital if you don't have insurance, to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings that are almost everywhere in the world, um, to recovery programs that are inpatient. Some are fancy, some are not. There are ones that are free and there are ones that are ones that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I, th- the first thing I would say is if you think you've got a problem, Call somebody else. Mm -hmm. And the second thing I would say is, if you are like many of us, your first response will be to be defensive and say, well, that's not me. You're different from me. Um, And so those are the two things I would say. And the third one I would say is if you take that next step and have a cup of coffee or show up at the hospital or show up at at some kind of a meeting of some sort, um, is take one thing that the people there suggest and do it. Just take what you think it makes no sense at all. Just do it. Um, And you might, you you may decide I'm not an alcoholic. Um, You may decide, well, I want, I need something different. You might make a new friend who you spend time with and it may not be your time to stop drinking or using or whatever it might be. Uh, But the the biggest part is not to, not to think, I mean, kind of there are so many old tropes that people, some people like and some people don't. But the the idea that you don't, you don't think your way to good living, you live your way to good thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and I find in recovery program, what, what really felt like it saved me was they didn't tell me how to think. They told me what to do. And that first choice I could make is what I'm choosing to do isn't working. I'm going to do what they tell me. It likely won't kill me. Um, so that's what I say. And the other thing I would say is I don't know who listens to this and where. And even though I don't talk specifically about a recovery program here, I'm happy to talk to anybody that wants to talk to me. My email address is S artery a r d e r y at lawbr.com if you email me and tell me you want to talk about um, an addiction issue i'm happy to talk to you about that Um, and if if we if i get your email i'll respond to it if not you can call me at my office which is also public Um, so i will take that call i will take that email and i will talk to you specifically and i'm not claiming that you know i'm I'm a that i can save somebody from their disease and i believe it's a disease not everybody does Um, But I can share my experience, and I can share what worked for me. And then somebody else can choose whether they want to give that a try or not. Um, And I've got no judgment if people don't. Um, I I wish them well, and I don't try to tell anybody what to do. I can say this worked, this didn't work, this is a suggestion I would have, and you can choose whether you want that suggestion or not.
1: And, you know, and you take that, that approach because that, I mean from going through your own recovery process, you probably wouldn't have responded if someone told you to Sam, this is what you need to do. You probably have said, F you, I'm going to do what the hell I want and maybe move in the opposite <laughs> direction. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's kind of like
0: that therapist though, that talks so directly to me. I think that there are lots of different ways. There are lots of skillful ways to talk to people. I mean, where, I mean, whether you're talking to a jury or whether you're talking to you, you talk probably different to your spouse than you talk to your best friend. I mean, there are different, you start to realize the ways people can hear. Um, so there are some people I've been just as direct as you said with some people. Um, but the relationship has usually gotten to a different place. Or if somebody is on the, the brink of death, if they don't do something, then I I will talk with way more energy than I'm speaking right now. This is a deadly disease. I believe you will be dead in the next week. If you don't do something different, here's what I would suggest you do. And I will take you there. Now, if they say, no, I'm not going to throw them over the shoulder and throw them in my car. Um, but there are circumstances that call for that kind of, Direct, unvarnished kind of energy. There are other times where, if you did that, the people would either say that or they'd curl up in such a quivering heap that they couldn't hear you anyway. What, the, what they need is a, an arm around them and a hug. I mean, one of the when I, I remember the first time somebody said to me, Sam, we're going to love you until you learn to love yourself. Oh, yeah. um, hardly anybody that is an addict or a recovering alcoholic likes themselves very well. I mean, have all kinds of ways they shield that and they may even lie to themselves about it. But the idea that you could start disclosing some of the most awful things you've done um, and people don't get up and leave. They Mm -hmm. sit there right with you. They'll listen to you. They'll talk to you. They'll help you if you want help. Um, It's it's really recovery can be an extraordinary process. But this is kind of the good part of it. It also hurts like hell. I mean, it is really, really hard. You are making a decision every day, not how to get out of pain, but which pain you're going to (laughs) choose. Um, and I don't know many people that volunteer for that duty. Some of us just have it. But, but there again, that does not make alcoholics special. I mean, people have all kinds of life circumstances with their marriage, their children, their health circumstances, their families that are that way. They're getting up and saying, I have no pain free decision. My, my child is suffering. My parents going through this. I've got to decide whether to put them in a nursing home or not. Th- those are not pain free decisions. And what recovery gave me is a way to address some of those things in a healthier way. And it do- didn't apply for me just to getting sober. After I stopped drinking, it gave me a different way to live.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, the fact that, you know, the, when you stop drinking is that's when, you know, you, a month later you had your first mediation, it was kind of like a career shift yeah. for you. I, and I don't know, the, talking to you and knowing how, how you go through mediations, I, I feel like your recovery process has really aided your mediation strategy to make it that much more successful and effective for you. At least that that's my impression. Like mm-hmm. I feel like it it made you who you are now and it car- carved out your your new successes.
0: On my good days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think you you had to dive into a lot of self-reflection and I think that self-reflection has allowed you to, you know, come into, you know, your role as a mediator and you have a good perspective on how, how people think and how they operate, and you can kind of utilize your own self-reflection to navigate the mediation process. That's how I see it, at least.
0: Well, I, I, I'll remember that because that makes me feel better. Um, <laughs> but, but what you just said there is really important about the self-reflection piece, because there is not a bright line distinction necessarily between self-reflection and self-absorption.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and sometimes we are not the best judge of it. So when I'm drinking, I'm totally self-absorbed. There's not self-reflection. There's, self, there's a lot of self-pity. There's I'm the victim, all those things. Um, and then as I got better and the alcohol was out of my system and people helped me, then I learned a little bit more what self-reflection looked like. Now, having said that, the fact that I'm 27 years sober and I've done 4,000 mediations mediation does not mean I'm not fully capable of self-absorption. um my 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 ego is ever present and when that mediation gets toward the end of its third day and it's not getting done and i'm thinking well i'm mediating this case this case gets done because i settle cases well what a bunch of horse manure you know some cases most cases i settle mediate because that's true or settle mediate settle because that's true most cases um but that that's that that fine line between self-reflection and self-absorption um is a really important one and so having people in your lives that certainly don't have to be alcoholic they will tell you the truth say okay sam you've just gotten way beyond self-reflection and you're thinking only about you right now and it's not doing you or anybody else any good those are important friends to have that will still say with you after you've yelled at them that, that you disagree um but that that that's why i say um and, and I, I forget who my friend is that i first heard say this sam you're a garden variety alcoholic um And and what I and he didn't mean it in a bad way, but it's nice to be part of and think you got to be better than everybody all the time. I'm a garden variety human being. I'm a garden variety mediator. There are cases I mediate that settle, and cases that that other people, if they mediate, they might settle better or differently, or that I don't so. I mean, remembering that I'm garden variety, it's it's like I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, "True humility isn't being right sized; it's when you're not thinking about yourself at all." Um, and that's when I find mediation or friendship is that it's very best is when you're so engaged with that other person and what's going on that you're not thinking about yourself at all. What a relief to not yeah. be thinking about yourself. Yeah.
1: It's like, it, I think that's a perfect way to put it. Like, like, and also just being less self-consumed, you know, and when yes. you're, you're not thinking about what other people are thinking about you or, you know, what might, it, I think it gives you a nice little peace. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, it, it, it can. And, and it, however short or long it lasts, I mean, it never lasts forever, but yeah, whatever little knows. bit, whatever little piece we can get, we need to be grateful for. I agree.
1: Well, Sam, I appreciate you so much coming on and, and talking about, you know, your journey and being so open and honest about your struggles and everything. And I, 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 I really encourage anyone listening um, and tuning in to you know reach take your invitation and to reach out to you if they have any questions or they just want to hear uh, share some of their personal um, anything personal going on them with you. I'm, I'm volunteering you for, but you kind of volunteered yourself. <laughs> I
0: did. I did. And, and I check my email multiple times a day, so I, you may not get a response right away, but you'll get a response.
1: But and of course, if you're looking for an amazing mediator, you know where to find find Sam ah. as well. But that was not the focus of, of today's discussion. But as always, it's a pleasure having having you on. I truly appreciate um, your insight and your wisdom and just the the conversation I always get to have with you. So thank you for that. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Megan. And for everyone listening, you know, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the Defense S on Apple Podcasts. And you can also find us on YouTube at TDNR Podcast. Thank you.